Hello, you're listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. It's never been easy to be a faithful Catholic. Whether it was during the early persecutions, the Middle Ages, or American life recently, it's never been easy. Our job on this podcast is, well, to make it a little easier. How many times have you had questions after the homily? How many times have you wished that Father had talked about this or talked about that, or why did he talk about that? Or wouldn't it be great to just sit down with your priest and ask them about things that couldn't quite make it in to the homily? Well, this is the podcast for you. We'll talk openly and clearly about topics ranging from literature to politics and church teaching to, well, church architecture. It doesn't matter if it's relevant to Catholics, to their daily life, to their journey to heaven, it's on our agenda. It doesn't matter if you're a every day in the pew Catholic and every Sunday, maybe an every Christmas and Easter, or maybe you can't remember the last time you attended Mass. We're here and we're here for you. Father Daniel is the pastor at St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in addition to a plethora of other clerical duties in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. Father Daniel, it's great to be with you today. What a joy. Father Dan, let, let's start this podcast, you know, our inaugural episode, if you will, with a discussion about podcasts, you might say. You know, why are we here? You're the pastor of a very large parish. You've got a very full calendar. It's no secret you've talked about the busy word and that we're too busy and that the evils or the potential evils of those electronic devices that we carry around with us all of the time. Interestingly, the devices that our listeners will probably use to hear this podcast. So what convinced you to carve out some time for recording a podcast? The first intuition was that of St. Paul, who went from place to place and he spoke in person to any number of people. But then he realized that after those homilies, he needed to go deeper and he certainly wanted to reach a larger audience. And so I would see the podcast format as a type of extension of what Paul does in his letters in a way that actually formed the, a large portion of the New Testament. As far as our gadgets serving us rather than us serving our gadgets, this podcast strikes me as an excellent use of the technology mm. precisely to go deeper and to speak in a more extended way on a greater variety of topics mm. that might not always be possible within the limits of the celebration of the liturgy. You know, I'll bet most listeners would be shocked to learn that I don't want to say there's rules to the homily, but you you have a job to get done with the homily. Maybe you could speak a little to that about how what is a priest thinking when they're preparing the homily for a given Sunday? First, I always ask the Lord what he wants me to say. And the homily is actually a response to the word of God. And the word of God, of course, is a person before it's a text. It's the person of Christ himself. But it is a response to what has just been proclaimed of mm. Jesus Christ and, and his plan for the church. So the homily needs to emerge from within the proclaimed word of God, and it needs to reach people where they're at. In the case of a weekday or a Sunday homily, I'm looking out at 
a congregation of people from the youngest of children <laughs> to the, the most seasoned adults who have heard this gospel potentially for decades and decades of their life. So it's a question of, of being faithful to what's being proclaimed in the word of God rather than proclaiming you know, what I want to talk about mm. and also speaking to what the congregation needs for growth in their life of faith. Mm. Yeah. I think that helps people, I think, understand that, you know, sometimes, and I'm sure it's no accident, current events line up beautifully with that day's readings. Uh, that's the Holy Spirit guiding things. But a lot of times they, they don't. And I think parishioners may be disappointed. Why didn't Father talk about that thing that just happened on the news yesterday? Uh, but if it doesn't fit the, the formula, so to speak, that you just outlined, it makes sense that it wouldn't be in the homily. And another dimension to consider is that the homily is actually part of time devoted for divine worship. Mm. And so in the, the Catholic Church, it's, it's feeding on both word and sacrament. And so it's not just a question of the limits of time uh, determining things. For example, if we were in a Catholic church in Africa, we, we would have hours <laughs> to talk at greater length. So it's not a question of just accommodating oneself to the contemporary American suburban attention span. <laughs> it's also a form of speaking that actually isn't governed by the, the so-called bad news mm. that, that often gets us going mm. in the wider culture. I think oftentimes people are wanting the homily to be a type of editorial response <laughs> to whatever was, was on the news or in the news in, in the, the news cycle. And we're preaching in light of, of eternity. It does mean that the life and death issues that are, are in our midst, that are simply inescapable, they have to be engaged. But they have to be engaged from the standpoint of, of faith rather than political polemics, mm. for example. Sure. Well, and you, you talked about gazing out over the crowd and sort of needing to give what you perceive that needs to be given. You know, as we sit here recording this, who do you sort of see listening to you? Or you might say, who do you see as your audience for a podcast like this? Well, I like to think of Christ on the mountain at the multiplication of the loaves and fish. <laughs> and he has his apostles around him. They have their instructions, what to do. And when Jesus looks out at the crowds, the people in the front, one can assume, are perhaps the most interested and, and free to, to be there, the, the most eager listeners. And then there are people a little bit farther back. Maybe they were invited by, by somebody else. Maybe they're not all that sure. Then there are people who just show up and they don't know what's going on, but they see a lot of other people <laughs> interested. So I see this podcast as reaching a much larger group of people than those who would, so to speak, be in the front mm -hmm. pews of Mass every Sunday. That said, I also think that the, the people who come to Mass on Sunday, they actually deserve a fuller exposition of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And I think this 
podcast is part of our common lifelong learning in the faith. It's it's impossible to be fed simply on the Sunday homily. Mm-hmm. So I would see this as, in a sense, part of the scraps left over <laughs> when, when Jesus multiplies Filling the, up the, baskets. the yeah. loaves. Yeah. He instructs the apostles yeah. to, to pick up the scraps so there'll be something more to yeah. feed on later. Wow. Well, m- moving on to the the main topic of of this episode's discussion, listeners know there's been a great deal in culture recently about the Supreme Court decision related to Roe versus Wade or the so-called Dobbs decision. A lot said by a lot of different kinds of people from a lot of different perspectives. Uh, as you've lived through these past few weeks, what what strikes you the most about where we are in this discussion? In a most obvious sense, we're living at a moment of great historical change and uh, importance. It's a it's a great victory for constitutional jurisprudence. It's obviously a victory that will extend to the education of generations. But I'm actually under no illusions that this Supreme Court decision is somehow of its own accord going to change people's hearts. If you would permit me to share a story, it it's the story that came to mind immediately after I heard the, the announcement of this decision. And it comes from a doctoral dissertation of a physician by the name of Victoria Sweet. She's perhaps best known for her delightful book, God's Hotel, A Doctor, a Hospital, and a Pilgrimage to the Heart of Medicine. I have no idea what Dr. Sweet's personal background is, uh, still less what her views on abortion might be. But in the preface to her doctoral dissertation, which is called Rooted in the Earth, Rooted in the Sky, Hildegard of Bingen and Pre-Modern Medicine, this is the story she tells. Two experiments turned me from a life of medicine to a life of medicine and history, but not the kind of experiments expected from a physician. They were not scientific experiments, but quote-unquote historical experiments, and the first was my abortifacient garden. A dozen years ago, I replanted my garden, and partly in response to the abortion controversy with the boycott of RU486, the abortion pill, and partly in response to my own curiosity, I decided to create a garden of plants reported cross-culturally in the folk literature— Chinese, Ayurvedic, pre-modern, European, and Native American, as useful for, quote-unquote, bringing down the period. These included rue, thyme, wormwood, and lavender. The wormwood did very well. It flourished and grew from a small plant to a large and thriving bush, with powdery, silvery, and very bitter leaves. The thyme next to it died, however, and so eventually did the rue and the lavender, and then the adjoining bulbs, the rosemary, and the young olive tree downwind. Indeed, everything, I gradually realized, anywhere near the wormwood, died after a while, especially if it was newly planted and young. So I cut the wormwood down. Yet, even now, nothing grows very well anywhere near its former place of residence. It seems to have caused a prolonged sterility in the earth. Every single time that I read that account of that physician's experiment, 
I'm just overcome with awe at how illuminating it is of our current cultural situation, the lives uh, in which we find ourselves now. In the Bible, the Garden of Eden is the original setting where human beings are given the task of, of cultivating life, of, of serving this, this great gift of the Lord's command to be fruitful and multiply. We're given in the garden responsibility for each other. And from the beginning, there's, there's been fear at that prospect. There's certainly been curiosity that has led down the wrong paths. And it's ultimately led to the eclipse of our understanding of the Lord's good plans. And so, in a certain sense, the Dobbs decision of the Supreme Court, you can see it as cutting down the wormwood. Hmm. But that, that decision now for decades has created a culture of sterility in which we're faced with the prospect at this point of, of human beings actually calling into question whether they're male or female. Mm. We've moved so far beyond just the autonomous choice of whether to, to conceive babies or not to conceive babies. We're now at the point of, of the transhuman where we, we think that our will extends into what it is to be human in the most fundamental ways and you know given enough enough technological medical intervention and given enough legal freedom we can really get what we want and be who we are and it it's produced a tremendous uh, cultural sterility do you see that as an extension of that legal decision from the 70s did that start this process that has us where we are today Yes, but even before that, as Justice Clarence Thomas points out, there's a there's a whole jurisprudence around this so-called right to privacy, mm-hmm. especially in the the sexual realm, that that does go back to earlier decisions, for example, on the legality of of contraception mm-hmm. regarding the so-called uh, Comstock laws. I think it's important to understand that the sexual bond between husband and wife is created by God and that that sexual bond is designed to be powerful, pleasurable, and persistent <laughs> because the commitment of husband and wife to each other is its so important. It's so difficult and fearsome. And and the future of the human race passes by way of it. And, and so motherhood and fatherhood, as it finds its home in marriage, a culture actually needs to devote thought and resources to, to privileging that form of life. And, and the 10,000 uh, exceptions to it need to be understood in light of that fundamental truth. And so when I think of the early church's 
teaching regarding anything having to do with sexual morality, it was all of a piece. Mm-hmm. It, it, in the same breath that one talks about not committing adultery, the earliest writings, for example, the, the Didache, otherwise known as the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, the Epistle of Barnabas, explicitly excludes procured abortion as, as murder. So from the beginning, the, the early church saw in a sexual morality governed, normed by the Lord's plan for husband and wife, the, the refusal to equate that bond with, with other forms of, of sexual activity. So, for example, homosexual activity, abortion, infanticide, all of those. And, and because of that consistent ethic of life, the, the church grew and it distinguished itself from the surrounding culture, which, which gave itself to, to any number of willful attempts to pursue pleasure without consequences. And that's what we, from the heart of the church, need to recover today First, for the conversion of our own hearts, the strengthening of our own families, and then, then as a as a cultural proposal, it's impossible to legislate things that the the surrounding culture do, doesn't even have a vocabulary to understand or accept. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, it's almost as though that that wormwood tree has poisoned the soil and. There's a feeling that it may never produce fruit again by evidence of all of the the pain and the anger and the, sort of the vehemence of the moment. Uh, I wasn't, you know, old enough to know about the decision in the 70s, but I I personally have been a little surprised by so much anger over the decision. I mean, and so much misunderstanding about what the Supreme Court justice's role is in a decision. I mean, they're, they're legal scholars. They're not morality scholars. Right. But what do you make of that sort of tidal wave of anger that's come in the wake of that decision? I really think the mask has come off. When John Paul II, in his encyclical, The Gospel of Life, spoke about the culture of death, we're seeing its face exposed. And if if there were honesty in the big picture, credit would be given where credit is due. And for decades, the Catholic Church has been supporting women in difficult pregnancies every step of the way and helping the choice for life. And I myself in my priestly ministry have, have been part of this effort in the high schools in which I've taught in the, the March for Life year after year in offering pastoral counsel to families and to women of all ages who have, have suffered uh, through abortion. And I, I firmly believe that the truth has grace and the Lord's wisdom in the Be Fruitful and Multiply principle is that each human being allowed to be born is is a new, fresh start. And 
there's an intrinsic love of what's true and good and beautiful. And I actually think that the younger generation, who in many respects has, has grown up without the stabilities of uh, marriages where mom and dad are, are united, there's a, there's a longing for that stability. And I, I find an openness to, to something larger than just my will always seeking what, what I want. So I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously hopeful in the long run that we're reaching a point in which some of the dead ends of the, the culture of death are, are just being exposed for what they are. Hence the phrase, the mask has come off. I mean, it, it feels like, as an observer, just a wave of, I mean, it feels like pure evil. It, it isn't a, do you like this tax or do you like that tax or a candidate or another candidate? It feels like fighting evil because there's just so much, so much anger pent up there. And for the church from the very beginning, it was answering hatred with love. To love even one's enemies, to but, love even those who would would put one to death, and the the pursuing of what is good for people, that that's the only way forward. It's 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 the triumph of love. You know, to be pro life is is you could say to be Catholic, or the opposite. To be Catholic is to be uh, pro life, and it's probably impossible to know how long the Catholic Church has been identified with opposing abortion, presumably from the very beginning. On another podcast that I co-host, we we had uh, the executive vice president of Focus on the Family on, and Focus on the Family, representing relatively, you know, large evangelical swath of American religion, and he talked about historically evangelicals staying away from abortion as a topic because it felt too Catholic. I mean, isn't that ironic? And now our evangelical brothers and sisters are lockstep with us, you know, on matters of life. But isn't that interesting historically how the pendulum has swung? Uh, it's no longer just a Catholic issue, is it? There are historical roots for some of that initial misunderstanding because the United States was founded largely as a, a Protestant nation, and when the the waves and waves of of Catholic immigrants, the the French, the Irish, the Italian, started coming to the nation, it it produced fear that this was going to change the the culture in an adverse way. The fact that in the Catholic Church. It's not just this issue or that issue, but a, a coherent way of life. I, I remember for myself, my first real personal encounter with the pro-life movement was when I was a student at Notre Dame. This would have been the early 90s. And there was a professor who had just been denied tenure, and her name was Dr. Janet Smith. And she was the, the founder of what came to be called the Women's Care Center. And she was also 
uh, just completing her doctoral dissertation on Humanae Vitae, Pope Paul VI's encyclical against uh, contraception, affirming the church's constant teaching against that as a, a moral evil. And I found it fascinating because here was this woman who was doing this pro-life work, working on her anti-contraception thesis, and totally devoted to taking care of, of women at, at the worst, most vulnerable moments of their life. Some of them students at the university because the, the abortion facility had set up uh, right next to campus. And so she started a women's care center right next to the, uh, the abortion place. And that, that unified witness to take care of everyone involved, it, it struck me from the beginning as, as fundamentally true. And I had no idea that years and years later, through one of my parishioners at St. Vincent's, I would actually get to meet face-to-face and speak with that abortionist who ran that clinic, Wow, Dr. George Klopfer. And, and to be able to speak with the different people involved in this, you know, this dramatic, even apocalyptic contest— that's that's where the follower of Jesus Christ has to be. We can't we can't give in to cynicism and go away. We can't hide from uh, from the anger. We have to be at the heart of it with with the Lord's love. I'm sure you've uh, lived this allegation throughout your priesthood, but it's popular to say by some Catholics and particularly non-Catholics that you know the Catholic Church is anti-woman. Just look at how they treat contraception uh, and, you know, wanting to forced pregnancy and forced birth, I think is the phrase that we hear now. How do you speak to that issue of explaining sort of mother church is the opposite of being anti-woman, being extremely pro-woman? The very fact that the church is described as feminine, as, as receptive to to what the Lord wishes to share, the fact that at the center of our faith is a woman holding a child, the, the Blessed Virgin Mary, our Blessed Mother, holding Christ, who chose to, to be vulnerable right there, to be in her womb, to, to grow under her care. The church is fundamentally a family. And I have to say, at, at the most fundamental level, I find the, the charge of the church being anti-woman just incomprehensible because as a priest, for example, I'm surrounded by women <laughs> all day. And, and some of the, the greatest champions of the pro-life movement have, have been women. And, and those women are are rendered invisible in this rhetoric that seeks to pit one one group against the other. Also need to emphasize that even more missing than the pro-life women in this discussion are are the fathers of these children Mm -hmm. and how we are or are not 
preparing men to be husbands and fathers. And it's true at the women's care centers, there, there, there are parenting classes. So there, there is an outreach to, to men, but culturally there's, there's a virtual bankruptcy of attempts to prepare men to be husbands and fathers, to take responsibility. And so in the absence of that, women are simply left to themselves, which in many cases means left to the will uh, of, of the men who dominate them. And, and that, that just produces civilizational chaos. So I'm, I'm fascinated by the prospect of regaining a, a way for, for young men to discover the, the potential of spiritual husbandry and spiritual fatherhood placed at the service of, of women fully coming into their own. It is interesting to your point that men are sort of left out of this equation, both for the blame and responsibility and the opportunity to do greatness. And the answer is destroy a life. Um, and that's pro-woman. I think in my almost 30-year career as a gynecologist, I, I like to say I've never met a woman that chose abortion. I think it, in most cases it's chosen them. And then I think listeners have to reflect on how bad could things be for a woman to think that the answer was to do something that really goes against every thing it is to be a woman, that you know, to, to carry life. It's got to be horrible. And I think that's another allegation maybe against not only the Catholic Church, but in the pro-life communities that we're not interested in the babies after they're born and, and these sorts of nonsensical things. But uh, having seen those women, it, it is horrible, the circumstances that they find themselves but instead of making it easier for them to have an abortion, how about we fix those circumstances? Yes. Um, how about we bring the men back into the equation and, as you say, teach them that they have a role, yes. spiritually and literally? And given that in abortion, more than 50% of those aborted children are female, because the cultural prejudice <laughs> for males remains, or whatever that is, so it is pro-woman— hmm to allow the next generation of, of females to, to come into its own. And I have to say, in, in my 20 years of, of priesthood, the women who have, have come to me at all ages and, and circumstances, either considering having an abortion or after they've suffered it, uh, years and years after, there's a, a profound sorrow in need of accompaniment. And when they discover that at the heart of the church is the mercy of the Lord, the Lord who raises life from death, the, the overwhelming uh, reconciliation of of the Lord working in these women's life. This is the miracle that it may not make the newspapers and the, the, the television shows, but, but these are the, the hidden women who just heroically are, are seeking to move beyond 
of bad choices to to a, a, a real healing uh, that is inspired by the author of life. You know, it, it's impossible not to recognize that the country, the culture uh, is being torn apart virtually down the middle. You know, we could argue the percentages of people and how they feel, but for the most part, half of the country would would agree with us and half would disagree. And that that schism seems to exist within the Catholic Church as well. There, there are plenty of serious, devoted Catholics who would call themselves pro-choice. Many of us struggle to understand just the logic behind that, but it is a reality. How do you, as a priest, and how do we as parishioners try to begin those conversations that, that are inevitable? We have to have those conversations if we're ever going to get to a better place. How do we do that? I think it's important that we're bringing specific people in our life with whom we may disagree, that we bring them to prayer, that we, we look at them lovingly with the eyes of God, and we ask the Holy Spirit to show us what to say, when to say it, how to say it, if to say it. And there, there is no substitute for the patient, persistent, listening, accompanying proposal of, of what, is, what is true and good. I'll just give you a, one example. When I was teaching at one of our Catholic high schools, there was a young woman, a student of mine, who found herself pregnant, perhaps a junior in high school. And she actually wanted to keep the baby, to carry the baby to term. But her grandmother was adamantly opposed to it. And, and precisely because her grandmother was an unwed mother and didn't want her granddaughter to suffer like she did. And her grandmother was was pressuring her, pressuring her to have the abortion. And this courageous young woman, from the fruit of her prayer, said, Well, why don't why don't you just come and and speak with uh with Father Dan? And so I I sat down with the grandmother and and she was she was angry and afraid and and sad and and she started screaming at me that that her granddaughter has to have this abortion she can't have this baby and in the midst of the screaming she gave an argument that i had never heard of before she said that um our lady of guadalupe would want her to have the abortion and i'm just looking at her in shock at this point. And she was reasoning, well, Mary gave her choice and Mary had choice. And, and the granddaughter looked at her and said, Mary would never do that. And, you know, rather than getting agitated, I, I tried to be as calm as I could. And, and actually just keep the focus on the care of this granddaughter. And, and you know, we will, 
we will take care of of what she needs so she doesn't have to be alone like like you mm-hmm. grandma were and and we will just take this step by step and it's it's going to be all right and and our lady of guadalupe is going to place all of us under her protective care and so anyway, mm-hmm. fast forward. I will never forget this as long as I live, seeing the young woman and her grandmother coming into school, holding the baby. Oh my. To see three generations. And, and nobody, nobody was talking along the lines of, you know, well, who won the argument? It, it all like all of the all of the the anger and the frustration and the sorrow was resolved with a human being being accompanied in the birth and rearing of another human being and i just think with the with the culture of uh, all sorts of disembodied voices from the TV, the computer, all the gadgets getting in our heads. It it just creates a, a culture of agitation when in fact we actually need to be creating these ecosystems of of care where people know that even if we disagree, they they can always go if they're looking for the next step to be helped in their their toughest moments. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's fascinating. I think about uh, my own children through the years trying to teach them that if you destroy the person that you're arguing with and leave them in a puddle, it really hasn't accomplished much. You haven't, you haven't changed anyone's mind. You just beat them up with words. It's almost as though to win the argument, there has to not be an argument any longer. Um, So I have a, I have a friend who he and his wife were arguing and they had a great epiphany one day, great realization. <laughs> the The husband said, you know, we're arguing all the time and it's always winners, losers. But if I'm losing the argument most of the time, that means I'm a loser. And if you're losing the argument most of the time, that means I've married a loser. And that's a lose-lose proposition. <laughs> so they decided that from now on when they when they have a discussion, even about difficult things— it's a discussion so that the marriage can be the winner. And so to talk about the issue of choice and life so that all of the lives involved can be the winner, that, that gets it beyond one forcing something on, on another. Mm. Obviously in a, in a nation of laws, the law does shape the, the limits of, of human choice. And, and that's actually a good thing. And so sex, for as uh, intimate and personal as it is, it is not private. It is a social fact. Whether it's uh, the immunology of the spread of disease or whether it's what happens in the action in which sperm meets egg, that, that's an intrinsically social fact. 
that that it, it, it simply false to to pretend otherwise. Mm. So as you pointed out earlier, we're in a post Roe v. Wade world. You know, we'll never be in that place where we were again. We'll be in a different place. But now we're in a different place than we were. What happens going forward? What is what is pro-life? What does it mean going forward to be a Catholic and to be a supporter of life that's different than just a few months ago? I think there's a new generation of thinkers, in some ways inspired by Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body. I'm reading right now a book called The Genesis of Gender by a woman named Abigail Faval. And what's so extraordinary about a book like this is that it just takes a very patient, loving look at the history of the sexual revolution, identifies what good can be identified in it, and then essentially offers the church's anthropology, the church's understanding of the human person as, as the antidote. And I, I just think that whether it's middle schoolers, high schoolers, young adults in college, that the church just has to patiently, in a very beautiful way, propose marriage between one man and one woman for life as the way for the sexual expression of love to find its its true fulfillment. And that over time, you know, one healthy family at a time is the leaven that has the potential to change cultures. Nothing short of that will do it. Mm. Empires fall, whether it's Rome, Babylon, you name it, when the sense of God is eclipsed and when human beings think that they're emperors, especially in the sexual realm, and it, it produces disintegration. The alternative is individual families living their commitment to Christ in the church radically and then inviting other people to share that life. And then those networks of families, whether it's a parish or a lay movement in the church, that's strengthening the, the culture outward. Yeah, I mean, it feels like way oversimplified, but if we get life right, we'll get families right. And if we get families right, we'll get everything right or at least a lot more things right. Well, I can't think of a, a better way to come to a close in this discussion, but as we do, anything that you'd like to leave our listeners with with regard to this court decision and moving forward? The Lord, in his plan, is already preparing the next generation of men and women who will carry forward the the civilization of love. The truth is the garden, the garden of the church is ever fruitful. And we are made for this historical moment. It is ours. And, and we can ask the, the Lord who commands his creation to be fruitful and to multiply would, would make us uh, bold and beautiful witnesses to 
this love of his in the world. Well, thank you, Father. Listeners, I I hope you've enjoyed this episode of After the Homily as much as I've enjoyed participating in it. I hope you'll plan to join us regularly for future episodes. Are there topics that you'd like to hear Father Daniel discuss? Do you have a question that you would like him to answer? If so, we would love to hear from you. You can email us on the website, excuse me, on the email address that's that's on St. Vincent de Paul's website. You can text me directly at 260-450-8878 and put after the homily at the beginning of the text. Well, thank you for listening to After the Homily. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud.